This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Jacob Jarvis and joining me is Alex Andreu with his voice smoother than a Bailey's hot chocolate. Good morning, Alex. How are you? <laughs> Good morning, Jav. I'm not sure I can promise a very smooth voice this early in the morning, but I'll try. <laughs> so it's our it's our first show of 2024, so we're going to do it a little bit differently than we usually do, with a few immediate things to look out for. Because then we'll that do... will take a lot of getting used to, won't it? 2024. <laughs> yeah, it does feel, it feels quite like we're in the future, doesn't it? It's quite strange. Yeah. So we'll do first some immediate things, then we'll do a big oversight for the year. So let's start with a bit of current news. Sunak, at the moment, he's claiming that the UK's asylum backlog has been cleared. But basically... To me, from reading on it, it seems like nobody seems to agree with that. Is he setting himself up for some pretty severe scrutiny over the coming days? Okay, so the first thing to say is that the Home Office have put out this press release saying, we've done it, but they've not published the data that goes with it. That will come later this morning, which is in itself quite unusual. So make of that what you will. Just to give listeners a little bit of background. So in December, 12th of December 2022, in the Commons, Sunak said that the government expected, and I quote, to abolish the backlog of initial asylum decisions by the end of next year. Okay? That was the pledge. The Prime Minister's official spokesman then backtracked from that over the next few days and said the pledge only related to claims made before the 28th of June 2022. So not the 140,000 cases that were the actual backlog at that point, but just over 90,000 cases which had been entered into the system before June 2022. I mean, it's a fairly arbitrary line to draw. It is the date on which the the borders uh, bill came into effect. So I guess that is the official excuse. But other than that, it is a really weird thing to do. Governments usually judge asylum statistics based on what is called the rolling backlog. So you look at the number of cases in the system, and you see whether they're coming down or not. So that's usually a more reliable way to do it. Anyway, so they're saying they've done it. We know that they have reclassified thousands of cases as complex. So what they've done is a a first pass over cases where some have been approved quite easily, some have been rejected quite easily, and others have been reclassified as complex. So they're off the backlog, but not actually off the running total. And we also know that about 17,000 cases have been withdrawn, which usually means an asylum seeker hasn't responded to some request from the Home Office on time. So they drop out of the system, but can, of course, revive their claim or appeal the withdrawal of that claim or refile it. So 
what does that mean in practice? So there's over 100,000 people still in the system, right? If you add in those withdrawn applications, then the rolling backlog has been reduced by only about 20,000 in real numbers. And it is actually very similar to what it was in June 2022. Only 25,000 newer applications have been processed this year. So, I mean, you know, you're still looking at people who arrived in August or September 2022, have been waiting for well over a year, still not being processed. Progress, yes. Victory, no, I think is the the short answer. I look forward to Rishi Sunak declaring more and more of his tasks that he has to accomplish as simply complex over the next year. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, inflation, it's quite complex. So we uh, we won't start that one. Inflation is the only one he's going to do quite well on because it's, it's the only one that's bugger all to do with him. Um, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> on, to, uh, on to some other Sunak misjudgments. So him and Dominic Cummings, they had a little love in, it's been reported as far as we can see. So it's, it's unclear exactly what went on there are suggestions that a job was offered but it's all you know that's denied we can't we'll never exactly know i suppose but he did once quite firmly distance himself from cummings you know when he was running for leader said that he would have no part of his government so it's all a little bit embarrassing really isn't it are we going to over the next few months just see the floodgates open of other tales like this showing us how desperate sunak is to cling on to some sort of power I mean, what's interesting to me about this story, and I do note that Downing Street have not denied the story. They sort of quibbled over the details of whether this was a firm job offer. You know, they haven't denied the meetings and they haven't denied the meat of the story, as reported by Tim Shipman a couple of days ago. So, which is that the, the prime minister basically wanted for Cummings to work secretly for him because to do so openly would antagonize both the country and his own backbenchers. So he basically invited him, in in Cummings' words, to work secretly on politics and communication in return for a promise that I could come to Number 10 and sort out my priorities after the election, right? And he says he, he declined that. To me, what's important about that is that they have learned nothing you know, the, the COVID inquiry was going on in the last few months of last year. We saw what that kind of dysfunction, those sort of backroom deals, we saw what they cost the country in real lives, in real misery. And they're still doing it because their only priority is winning. Nothing else matters, not the party, certainly not the country. And so, Everyone is trying to adjust their expectations about the election uh, next year. We know that politics is very fluid. At the moment, it changes overnight. But all of that somehow implies that the Conservatives are going to have a sort of period of stability and a period of avoiding cock-ups and avoiding scandals and avoiding negative stories. And that, to me, is a huge assumption because they don't they haven't learned a thing they will trundle on in precisely the same way 
because the venality, the complacency, the corruption that's endemic to this government is a function of it having been in power for so long and having changed leaders so often that there is no talent left, there are no ideas left. So all there is is power, but no will or ideology to do anything with it. There's been some Tory MPs sort of secretly murmuring about it to, hmm. you know, in sort of unnamed quotes to reporters and that sort of thing. But as you say, well, this, to me, this just seems like quite an obvious thing that would happen, that Sunak would find someone who has helped people win in the past and attempt to, to leverage that. So do you think it's actually going to cause any kind of real unrest among the Tories and cause more of psychodrama? Or can that actually develop any more? Are they going to just that will mount to nothing because realistically they must understand despite public appearances that as you say all they've got is the hope of winning a bit of power i mean to me that depends on why cummings published this story now you know because the source of it is his own substack he actually went on there actively and decided to share this story at this precise point with sunak struggling so to me, that is interesting, and it plugs directly into whether this will develop into a thing or die down. If he's just stirring and trying to stay relevant, this may well fizzle out. If this is an indication that he has some sort of new horse in the race, that he's agitating for some kind of side of the Tory party, then this obviously has much more potential to develop into something bigger. So what else in the short term are you keeping a particular eye on then, Alex? So there's by-elections coming up. Peter Bone's old seat first. Uh, there's been a recall petition that attracted sufficient numbers there. And then probably Scott Benton's, who has been recommended for a suspension of 35 days. I doubt the Commons will reduce that by you know, more than two thirds, meaning he avoids a recall petition. So those two by-elections are ones to watch out for. And the other thing is, of course, the Randa bill will be trying to complete the rest of its journey through Parliament. And I am sure that there will be many amendments at the next stage and many interventions from the House of Lords. So that will be a lightning rod for a lot of political battles, I think. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Moving on now to wider themes for the UK this year. Is it just non-stop election chat then until an election actually is called, which is going to be pretty much anyone's guess? It's a couple of options, isn't there really? But we don't exactly know when that will happen. Sure. I mean, you know, we know that in practical terms, the 17th of December 2024 marks five years since Parliament first basically constituted itself after the last election. Hmm. And that means that that is the latest date it can dissolve. 
And if it doesn't, it will dissolve automatically on that date. So we know that the general election campaign will begin in earnest before Christmas, come what may. Tuesday, the 20th of January, 2025, is the latest the next election can be legally held for various reasons. The the Institute for Government has a very good explanation if listeners want to look into it more. Now, when will the election be? It's anyone's guess. My guess from the start, as you know, has been it will be May, June, because I can't see the Conservative Party wanting to withstand another period of small boat crossings. And, you know, it is so weather dependent that it could just be a disaster for them if the weather is very, very good and the summer is quite long, basically. So I still think that's the smartest money. But obviously, what will happen now is everyone will be planning for a spring election until it's too late for it to be called. And then they will start planning for a summer election until it's too late for that to be called. And then a sort of autumn election and ditto with winter. So what we will have is a sort of rolling period of three-month pre-election campaigning vibes until they fizzle out and then we get a short dip in that and go into the next three-month period of pre-election vibes. It will be quite exhausting, I think. Allow me to be to be very optimistic with this next question, but are we actually going to see, you know, if I was to be trying to run to be Prime Minister, I'd probably put forward some positive policy options at some point or try and do some good things whilst I was still in office. Is that likely? Is there anything positive coming down the line or is it just going to be kind of red meat bullshit for the dwindling group of people that Rishi Sunak thinks will vote for him? I admire your optimism. <laughs> I think there will be absolutely nothing. Sunak has no time to do anything meaningful, okay? Nor actually to promise anything meaningful. And let me explain that. Anything with a cost attached will be redeployed by Labour and different priorities, okay? Yeah. So if the Conservatives announce X thing, let's say a scheme to just make something up, anything, okay, a scheme to double school places, it will have a cost attached. And then Labour can come out and say, we would uh, increase school places by only 50% and redeploy the rest of that money to do X. And you can do that with anything, right? If they announce a big road building program, if they announce a any big infrastructure project, Labour would be able to say that money is there, it's budgeted for already, and we would deploy it in X way. The strategy will actually be to announce the cutting of stuff that costs money, to put pressure on Labour to say whether they would maintain it and how they would pay for it. So we are not going to get policy at all. We're not even going to get a lack of policy we go through that wormhole and out the other side to a sort of policy dark matter where the abolition of loads of policies that cost money is announced instead. It's not done. They, you know, they're not actually abolished. 
but their abolition is announced in order to put pressure on Labour to say, would you continue with that and how much would it cost? On that point, financially, I suppose, how are things going to look for Britain in this coming year? Mm, meh. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, the, the economy is stalling. Whether we go into technical re- recession this quarter or not, it's really neither here nor there, because if we go into recession, it won't be, you know, it won't be a massive one. And if we manage to have growth, ditto. So, however, the technical term rolls out, the fact is the economy is stagnant. It's not doing anything. And I see nothing among Sunak's plans that will somehow stimulate it to not be that. And so... You know, with the Bank of England still bearing down a little bit on on inflation, as they begin to take the foot off that pedal and begin to maybe drop interest rates again, we will see some small stimulation of economic activity. But counter to that, election years are always terrible for economic activity because basically companies wait to see what will happen at the election before they make massive investment decisions, both internationally and domestically. So we will see a a building of coffers, basically, waiting to see what will happen with the next election. Will we get a new government? What are their plans? And so, I mean, my prediction is that we will see largely flatness this whole year. Now, the problem for Sunak is that that doesn't mean that things are not getting worse for people, right? They are. Because, for instance, a lot of businesses and a lot of individuals will be paying energy bills this winter without any of the help and support that they've had the previous couple of winters. So even though those prices are not going up as fast, even though actually they're coming down in some cases, energy prices, because the government help has been removed, a lot of people and businesses will be paying more than they were paying last winter. And so the problem for Sunak is that the more he crows about what a brilliant job him and Hunt are doing in the economy, Basically, the poorer people will actually feel. And the gap between that rhetoric and the lived reality can really make him even more unpopular than he is already. Rishi Sunak will probably declare reality is quite complex, I suppose. And that's one way you can, he can fudge yeah, around maybe, it. Yeah, maybe, yes, shunt it <laughs> to, to next year. Yeah, absolutely. Move it all to 2025. So, Interestingly, this year as well, there's there's a lot of elections all over the globe. So a big focus, of course, will be the US election. Is it slowly looking more, unfortunately, like Trump could do, could do it again? No, I don't think it is. I mean, I know that is the the dominant narrative at the moment, but I think this is a largely untested assumption. All we're seeing at the moment front and center is Trump's popularity within his own party. And I think that skews things hugely. Effectively, you just have one side campaigning at the moment. And of course, you would see that. It it really is a regular feature of US elections. Like when the incumbent president is not running in some big primary, but the 
potential opponent is, as it were, they get six months free publicity and they always go up in the polls and then things equalize. So no, I think obviously, you know, they're neck and neck. Obviously, it is a possibility that Trump will win. But I think his victory is overpriced at the moment. Let's let's put it that way, okay? I mean, who could predict what would happen in a year of politics nowadays with things being so volatile? Like, if you had asked me on the 1st of January 2022 to predict what was going to happen to the Johnson administration, would anyone sane be predicting that by the end of that year we would be on our third prime minister? Not second, third. So who knows what will happen? Trying to predict what will happen in such a volatile race 11 months ahead of time, uh, to me, is a fool's errand. The incumbent always has an advantage in the US elections. There is a reason why it is very rare for a president not to win a second term, right? It could be Trump but it's overpriced at the moment. It's the one thing we, we can predict, I suppose, with Trump is that the win or lose, how just horribly he will run this race will cause some severe strain upon society in the US and on its institutions just through you know, the, the misinformation I'm sure he will use, the way he will weaponize whatever he can to try and win. You know, can we, should we predict this kind of, Last time out, you know, the things held together pretty well. And even if he, you know, if he were to win, who knows how well things would would hold out again. But regardless, just the state he will leave, a Trump race might leave the US in, is something we can predict, is that it will leave such a chasm no matter what. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this time will be worse if he does get in, for sure. Because this time he will have a largely compliant Supreme Court. And in the American constitutional setup, that makes a massive difference. Having a Supreme Court that just says yes to you makes a giant difference to the amount of stuff you can break while you're in office. And so, yes, if he he got in, it would be worse by orders of magnitude to what we had seen before. What other elections across the globe should we be focusing on this year? Well, Bangladesh is coming up on Sunday. You know, that's a a huge democratic exercise. The Russian presidential election is in March. Uh, I mean, I I don't expect it to be a democratic election, but it is interesting nevertheless, because it will become the focus of unrest, possibly, protest, you know, you can still read things into it, aside from the, you know, government mandated, I won with 99% sort of stuff. It will still be an interesting period for Russia. The Indian elections are coming up in the spring. And hugely importantly, the European Parliament elections are in June. That is when we find out how much progress actually the far right have made in a sort of PR context across all of Europe. Because we do hear about it a lot, and then the the European Parliament elections come, 
and it tends to be not as bad as people predicted. But I think this year, there really is a possibility that we will see the far right make significant gains. And to me, what's interesting about that is that it might push center-left and center-right parties together. It might actually unite the opposition in, I guess, their belief in institutions, in normality, in rules, in technocracy in many ways. And that, I think, will be an interesting development because whatever happens on the fringes, if the center-right and the center-left can get their act together in any country, in any context, even in a pan-European one, they are unbeatable. Turning to the the international conflicts that we've seen over the, the last year and rolling into this year, so looking at Ukraine, what's the latest there and what can we expect to develop in coming months? I mean, very little. The winter is is a relatively quiet period unless the ground freezes over quite significantly and then heavy vehicles and artillery can roll on. But mostly, I think we will see consolidation and small attacks, especially with drones. So we will see concentrated incursions where Russia saves up its missiles and then does one big attack. You know, Ukraine saves up its drones and then does one big attack. Um, And that, I think, will be the pattern for the next few months. But, you know, importantly, both the United States and Europe are currently having problems getting their act together in terms of providing funding. I do think it will be overcome because I think the stakes are so high that really the West is all in against Russia. And I think to drop out at this point would be absolute madness. They would just hand a a sort of moral victory to Putin that they really cannot afford to do. Israel, Hamas, I mean, that is rolling on in all its horror, even over Christmas. We just saw tanks um, rolling into Gaza. I mean, the, the loss of life is giant. It is such a densely populated area, especially having pushed you know, so many thousands of people from the north into the south. It it, it is impossible to mount any kind of operation without huge collateral losses. But we are seeing a softening, I think, of international support for what Israel is doing, and, and that will be a theme that develops. I would hope, but also expect, to see some progress in the third week of January, I think we will see more pressure, especially from the White House, and we will see probably another period of a humanitarian pause and an exchange of hostages. And then there's a third conflict that really nobody's talking about, and that's in Sudan. The numbers involved are ginormous. I keep bringing this up because it is astonishing to me that we're not talking about it more. We're almost 7 million displaced people. The combat of that civil war is spreading. So just before Christmas, a quarter of a million people had to leave the second city and, you know, were displaced elsewhere in the country because the conflict had spread to there. 
I mean, we have a choice to get interested in what's going on there in, I would say, between 12 and 18 months, when loads of Sudanese people start arriving on our shore in dinghies, or we can get interested in it now. And to me, the latter seems a much smarter option. Finally, looking at some tech news. So last year was really dominated by AI on all discussions when it came to technology. Should we expect massive developments in that space this year? Or will we just see that tech is actually going to begin to be used in full force, for example, in the the elections that are coming up? I mean, for sure, this will be the first AI election, because all the stuff that, you know, electoral staff could do the micro-targeting, that kind of thing. AI can do a lot more efficiently, and we may even see deep fakes and things like that beginning to emerge that upset the apple cart. But I think this year will be the year of regulation, actually. I think this year will be the year when governments, both nationally and internationally, get together and begin to think about how to regulate this huge space opening up, you know, full of potential for abuse. Now, let's try to end on a on a positive note, Alex. Is there is there anything coming up in 2024 <laughs> that you are uh, <laughs> that you're that you're particularly looking forward to? Is there anything coming up that you think this will make it a great year? The new series of something good? I don't know. <laughs> um, the rise of the unnameable, the great Cthulhu, to finally put us yeah. out of our misery, perhaps. <laughs> um, I mean, yes, of course. Look, many good things will happen. I think we are genuinely going to see a change of government in this country. And it is just profoundly needed right now. And like I said, I think we might see a polarization of politics that actually leads to the broadly socially progressive elements and the broadly traditional elements of our politics of centre-left and centre-right actually come together and realise that there is a real fight to be had beyond the fringes of, you know, how to sort of construct tax policy more fairly. You know, there is something much more fundamental going on, which is a battle for our current institutions and our democratic systems of government. And I think 2024 will be the year when people begin to cotton on to the fact that there is this larger battle and we do need to put aside minor differences. We need to stop vetting each other negatively, saying that, you know, you expressed one opinion on one subject that I find wholly unacceptable, and that means you're dead to me. You know, there are no saints. None of us will agree on everything. The question is, do we agree on enough to chart a journey together towards a a sort of common future that is better than what we have now, rather than going backwards. And I think this year, with the American presidential election, with the election here, and with the European parliamentary elections, will be the year when people, I hope, begin to realize that there is a bigger battle at stake. 
So you heard it here first, 2024, the year of the centrist. It's been declared on, on Start Your Week right now by the Bunker. And bunk. Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, thank you for joining me this morning, as always. My pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed Start Your Week, remember you can support us on Patreon to keep us going. From £3 a month, you'll get episodes ad-free and early and a shout-out on the show. I'm Jacob Jarvis, and thank you for joining us for Start Your Week. Start Your Week was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Alex Andreu. The audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and the managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.